0: We want to acknowledge that Carleton University and the other locations where we make this podcast are on traditional unceded Algonquin territory.
1: When that glacier overtook Costine, as I mentioned in the earlier story, um, and she paid for her, for her life, whether it was the old woman or not, um, that idea is that she paid for that place. It is then sacred, or what we call et which is sacred possession.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Department Podcast. I'm Billy Flynn, and we are very happy to be back after such a very long hiatus. I'm joined today by my co-host, Phil
3: Primo. Hello, everyone. Hello. Bonjour. Wow, we are happy to be back. And, you know, there's been a few things that have put some dents in our regular scheduled podcasting plan. Uh, COVID-19, a pandemic. uh, It's been rough for everyone. Uh, and it's been rough for us to put this podcast together. So I'm so glad to be back uh, in front of a mic with you, Billy.
2: Yes, uh, it's very nice to to hear the sound of your voice again, Phil, and uh, to be doing this again. Um, we initially got off to about two or three episodes, and then yeah. COVID-19 happened, the lockdown happened straight away. So really, um, we're really at the sort of beginning of our fourth episode in the department podcast, Phil,
3: huh? It- you know, it feels like we've been doing this for a very long time, but really we haven't been. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) uh, It's one of those things, you know, Um, but you know, this whole COVID-19 situation has really placed uh, an emphasis on, you know, finding ways to communicate uh, digitally and at a distance. So I'm glad that we've been able to find a way to do that. And uh, I, I think the podcast format is a format that allows people at a distance to listen to us as well. So, um, but um, aside from that, um, you know, how's the, your start of term going? Oh, that's a good question. Thanks, Phil. Um,
2: it's not going, it, it's going fine, uh, to be honest. Um, like you said, with the the pivot to online teaching and online learning or yeah, remote learning, yeah. uh, certainly it's caused me to th- rethink my teaching and caused me to rethink, uh, caused me to find new ways to communicate Academic knowledge, academic learning uh, to students uh, in the form of, uh, say, for example, audio clips, um, uh, narrated audio powerpoints, and so on as well. Yeah. So it's certainly uh, brought in some new challenges, interesting stuff uh, into my teaching for sure.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has as mine as well. You know, um, one of the things that I uh, typically enjoy doing in a classroom is. Um, kind of asking a question and then standing in front and kind of letting the class be silent and I'll think about it for a second. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, folks in the classroom kind of get a lot out of that, right? Uh, That's really strange and awkward to do (sighs) on Zoom. I tried it, you know, just this week and it didn't feel the same. so yeah, it's forced me to sort of rethink some of my in-classroom techniques and some of the things that uh, I took for granted when teaching in the classroom. And I think overall, it's gonna make us better educators. I think uh, paying attention to uh, how students learn digitally is actually gonna make us uh, more attentive educators in the future. So um, really looking forward to continuing on this term and I guess next,
2: uh, teaching online. Well, one of the interesting things and one of the exciting things uh, coming up in this term, Phil, is our decision to attempt a live broadcast format of the department podcast. Uh, how do you? A live broadcast podcast.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, the first live broadcast podcast uh, of the fall season uh, in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology, folks. Uh, basically, with a uh, Podbean, which. Uh, set up and uh, knows uh, how to run these things. Uh, Basically, we have a live uh, broadcast option. So instead of doing these pre-recorded shows uh, over the course of uh, several weeks, instead we're going to switch to a live format, maybe a 30-minute show, a short show, once a week or once every two weeks. And we're going to invite people to call in and uh, have a chat with us uh, on the department live.
3: Yeah, basically, it's our opportunity to have uh, an underground radio show, right? Think of it that way. Like, we'll be sitting uh, separated and through this technology, we'll be, uh, you know, co-hosting this thing. And then everyone else can listen and chime in. So um, you're going to have the opportunity to join the podcast uh, through your computer, um and i know that might sound daunting to some people um but we're going to share links and um, it will all become clear once we start uh the live broadcast but basically you'll go to a web page and you'll be able to join us and uh, you'll hear us you'll be able to speak to us and um that will become the recorded podcast episodes that we post uh, to the feet um and our hope is that um fellow colleagues and students will uh, join us and talk about something that they want to talk about. Uh, we don't know where this is going to go. No, no, it's a, it's exciting and it's
2: experimental. And in light of what we've just said about COVID-19 and social distancing and quarantine and stuff, this live broadcast podcast format uh, is really geared towards trying to at least develop a sense of community, uh, even if yeah, it's online, yeah. and just allow people and ourselves to be able to connect with people in the department in a hopefully weekly or biweekly format as well. So it's a, it's an attempt to build community uh, in a
3: digital format uh, via this live
2: podcast show, Phil, huh?
3: Yeah, yeah. And I think it, it also offers a really neat opportunity for folks to come on and tell us a story. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm using that language particularly because I think uh, this is a good place to segue into what this first episode of season two will be about. Absolutely. This is uh,
2: we basically before uh, COVID-19, we had a series of interviews lined up and already recorded that we were planning to release. Uh, And because of the COVID-19, we're basically going to spend the next two or three episodes um, releasing uh, these interviews that we did. That's right. So our first interview is with Sonia Gray, a graduate student in the Department of Anthropology and Sociology. And she graciously met up with us in March and spoke with us about her research, her FAS Award, and uh, some of the aspects she was thinking about in relation
3: to her fieldwork as an anthropologist as well. Before we get into that interview, I want to remind everyone how you can get into contact with us. We have an email it is info at departmentpodcast.ca. We also are on Twitter at departmentpod. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Google Play if it's still around, and uh, probably everywhere else that you listen uh, to your podcast. Uh, we really like to hear from you uh, while we get the show going again. We really hope that you take a few minutes, send us your suggestions for segments. What do you wanna hear? What do you want us to talk about? Or maybe you have something to say about sociology and anthropology, higher education, or virtual learning. Maybe you're a grad student or an undergrad taking your very first university class online. Share your thoughts, they're important to us. And also a big thanks Carleton University's Department of Sociology and Anthropology for sponsoring this podcast. Some great things are going on in the department and we're proud to be able to present this podcast to you. So without further ado, let's get on.
2: Let's get on with it. Okay. Sonia Gray, it is fantastic to have you on the show. Welcome. You're more than welcome to join us.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It's lovely to be here.
2: Welcome yeah. to the department. Thanks. Yeah. Um, and so, just to kind of start off, um, uh, let me see. I have in front of me, you won a Fast Summer 2016 Undergraduate Research Award. Yes, I did. Um, Congratulations. Yes. Uh, do you, how how did that actually end up uh, working out uh, in the end? Um,
1: it was a great experience. I think it was facilitated um, in part by um, my supervisor for that project was Zoe Todd. Okay. Um, I also had a number of courses with her where she introduced the idea of fieldwork and actually coming up with a proposal, right. um, and considering ethical. Um, requirements not only to the uh, institution but also to a community and that really she told us point blank at that moment that um, you are anthropologist just because you're undergrads Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you're not you can practice it right now and so that was a wonderful experience and you know it empowered um, me to feel like wow I can really think about research not in just you know seven or eight years Um, and then of course she was also the one who brought um that particular program to my attention um and although she was very instrumental I was able to uh, it, along the whole course of the way I went to Alaska to do my research as an undergrad um and it was a whole <laughs> another deal. Yeah. <laughs> um I have a high respect for that because as I'm doing the same process now for my masters uh, you know, you think you're going in with one thing, you're going to come out with a whole thing, right. you know, different, mm. a whole other animal. Um, but it was a very, um, a really neat experience to be in my own community, to see the intricacies of that. You know, it's not as easy as people think. Um, people treat me very differently when they know I'm interviewing for a particular <laughs> research right. project. And often when the recorder went off is <laughs> when I got the the meat. The good, the yeah, good stuff, yeah. Um, and in the form of, you know, which I think is important in little communities and and as in villages like mine is gossip. You know, Mm. it's a way of connecting and how you check in on each other, so. um, But, so I learned a lot Um, and I thought it, I didn't, I thought at the moment that I didn't really get the meat, and it was a short time, it was only a few weeks um, of my research, which which was centered on oral traditions and um, Mm. contemporary stories. And the funny thing is is that I looked back on it just the other day and thought, "Wow, I was brilliant right <laughs> I was I'm a genius, you know um, sometimes when you look back on your work, you're like, "Oh my gosh, you cringe." Um but that actually can add a lot to my my upcoming research and and I was maybe speaking in way in a particular way that i was putting forth something i I was thinking about but didn't quite understand right um but so I think it was it was. A remarkable experience um and i came back and i had to do um just give a little report almost like a three-minute thesis type situation okay um which yeah it was i think i wish everybody could do it mm-hmm. because it's valuable mm-hmm. yeah
2: and like uh, you mentioned like that it was a, it's something to do with kind of contemporary stories and older or traditional stories as well um i was wondering does your current research kind of Continue that in any way, or
1: it does. It's well. I would love to speak to um, oral traditions because they are an an a, an important vessel for carrying knowledge and laws, um, but also show I think the process or the continuum of our knowledge. A lot of right. people mm-hmm. think that indigenous knowledge is like this one, that it's mythical or mysterious, that it is set in time and it's just a template that we go by. Right, yeah. um, but stories are what show through, contem- you know, through the contemporary, precisely um, how those are constructed, if you pay right. attention. Yeah. Um, in fact, um, I have an upcoming talk at U of O and one of the things that I'm going to address right away, because I think people automatically assume if you're an indigenous scholar that you're going to be talking in story. Right, right. But it's a great way, not all, not for me. I can, you know, right now, I could throw around all kinds of names, you know, Foucault and Ingold and, you know, blah de blah de, blah right. and talk about theoretical frameworks, or I can tell you a story. Mm-hmm. And it's not for my benefit. It's for the benefit of the audience Yeah, to, okay. and yeah. to kind of picture it. Um, and so, I, but I also... Again, as a vessel and as a teaching tool, um, it's a great way for me to marry um, the more um, Western style academia um, and the more oral mm-hmm. um, yeah. capacities of storytelling that are that I'm more familiar with. Right. So my so my past uh, the, my research with FAS um, was that even though we tend to tell a lot of the older stories. Um, we don't realize in our everyday talk whether it's through gossip, mm. um, or whether it's through these um, persistent stories that they actually have a role in our life today, and right. how we um, connect to each other, um, to other beings, whether it's the mountains, or the ocean, or right. glaciers, and that such thing. But um, So it's an important vehicle, but I also, realize in my ma that you have to keep it kind of focused and so they're like well you know i can go off on a huge tangent about oral traditions i will use it i will use story as example um much in the way i like to follow the work of julie crookshank um and she wrote to do glaciers listen and she worked in and around um my home territory um and deals a lot with oral tradition, so I really was able to connect with her work. And and maybe as a con- as a continuation of her work, um, my masters would kind of approach that, but not in an analytical way. Right. Um, I would use it again as method, okay, um, as opposed to theory.
2: Right. So I imagine glaciers have their own stories to tell today. Oh yes. Oh yeah. Oh yes, <laughs>
1: they really do. Um, and it's it's kind of a, a remarkable thing working. I worked for the um national park glacier bay national park in alaska and of course they're well known for their glaciers and it's also um you know my ancestral homeland Mm -hmm. quote unquote um and so i got to see the glaciers every day and not just learn about them of course we have our oral traditions and our stories which are important um but also from the park's point of view a very scientific way which to me was very harmonious and that was the thing was like we weren't really telling different stories. We were saying right. the same thing, you know, in two kind of different ways. Right. Um, the beauty of, you know, the glaciers, and um, even 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 having watched these time lapse um, um, pictures of glaciers and and uh, that glaciologists had taken, they were alive. Right. You know, right. you could see them breathing. You know, stop and pause, and that you can see them, you know, as these as these living entities. Um, and the way that they're created, the way that they have these, you know, conversations with the ocean, and I think that's an important thing to think about when we start talking about climate change, which is where mm. my thesis is going, uh, right. my research, uh, because people tend to think that climate change is realized in the melting. Oh, the glaciers are melting. Well, um, tidewater glaciers, which meet the ocean, that's why they're called tidewater glaciers. You know, have that cycle. They are going to melt anytime yeah. they come in contact with the water. Right. So. They've had this conversation with the ocean forever, right. where, you know, and they have, you know, the, we always considered we, meaning the Klungk have always considered the mountains that they nestle in between their parents, um, and they cradle them. They dip their toes in the ocean. Uh-huh. They cover them with dirt to ward off, you know, the sun um, and snow in the winter. And that pretty much explains the life cycle of a glacier. Um, And it's really, I think, interesting when you start thinking about, you know, climate change in that it's one force acting on a glacier. And it's actually realized, climate change is realized not in the melting, but in the accumulation. Um, Glaciers always melt, Tidewater glaciers. um, But it takes twice as long to... Um, accumulate the snow at a certain elevation to compact into ice okay yeah and that is where it's not snowing anymore it's raining because of the temperature so it's realized again and what it's not gaining not in what it's losing okay so that's a whole nother hmm. way of a beauty uh, looking at it and um and just how you know they're Their systems are connected into other ecosystems you know they they feed you know the phytoplankton who feed you know the Mm -hmm. plankton and and then larger fish and you know it's a beautiful system that you know depend on melting glaciers right
3: yeah i just want to take us back a second um, because you were talking about storytelling Mm -hmm. and you offered us one short story of glaciers yeah um but you were talking about storytelling as like way of life and also storytelling as a vehicle to learn. Mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of ask, like, what was one of the first stories that you remember hearing or living or learning from?
1: Um, I think it, it's been the one that has kind of been central to not only my life, but maybe everyone in my village, and that's the story of, of the girl who called the glacier. Um, her name is mm-hmm. Um It's an interesting story where um, right now we're... we're Glacier Bay National Park is, um, which is a marine landscape. It used to be a valley where um, the Clinket lived. And there were several clans who lived around a river system that was created by the glacier. So lots of fish. Um, And they describe it as this lush valley. And, of course, um, during that time, um, a young woman who was first going through her first menses is put into isolation. Um, She's a very powerful person. And so her words have to be kind of guarded as to not, you know, create um, any imbalances. Um, Sometimes that isolation can be up to a year. So she's a young woman and the only person that could really speak to her or she could speak to is her mother who brings her food, always the matrilineal side. And then, um, of course, she had this piece of dried fish and they say she grew bored. And it used to really strike me because not only as a young girl, because you're kind of Bored all yeah, the time. Nice. Bored. Nice. Yeah. Um, but when I became a mother of a daughter, you know, you just understood that kind of restlessness and that power that they have that you just can't even explain. Um, and so it became important in several parts of my life, but it also was a story of where we were and wh- and who we were. Right. And so it said that Costine grew bored and she had this piece of fish um, and she called out to a glacier that at the time was sitting. Um, kind of nestled into uh, behind a mountain, um, and it was dark and black. And the Klinkit name was Sitkitush, which means little black glacier, which told the geologists a lot of things that it was in quiescence, it was stagnant, right. it was shrinking, and that was until Kostin called to it. So she called to it in Klinkit. She said Hagu, Hagu, which means come here. And of course, she had broken a couple of taboos. One, she spoke when she was not supposed to during that period, um, but also mistreating the bones of a fish, um, which we commit to fire, much like we did our dead. Um, we considered bones the kind of permanent parts mm. of our being. Okay. Um, and so we committed them to fire, um, to assure a return, a new generation, regeneration, right. whether it be salmon or our loved ones. And so she broke two taboos. and the glacier started to grow massively and quickly. And so the clans had to then decide whether to stay or to leave. Um, And of course it was coming so quickly, they decided to leave. And the story goes that Costine decided to stay. Um, She wanted to pay for her transgressions and whatnot, and her family told her no, it's okay, but she said no. Um, And so she stayed behind and the glacier came, they say as fast as a dog could run. Right. And of course, that wasn't believed mm. ever, and we've been telling the story for, like they say, since time immemorial. Right. Um, and because Costine stayed, um, the glacier overtook her and the village and pushed on outward like at an incredible rate. Um, Four thousand feet thick in the back, about um, two miles wide. Okay. It was incredibly large, and the clans had to then uh, leave, and they watched this all from their canoes. Um, and then they went into what is now Present Huna where I was born and raised, our village. So the story was told, um, but sometimes there was a change in the story. Sometimes right. it was the grandmother who stayed, hmm. um, and that always became like, wow, you know, oral traditions and oral history is so important to people who, I depend on it. Why would you have any discrepancies yeah, yeah. Um, and some you know, and I've read many- you know versions, but to me it was like well, you know it's it is kind of about perspective, mm. you know at what point in time would a young girl's life be more valuable than valuable than an older woman's right. life yeah, yeah. you know um and that is kind of how i i I see it now as not a different story, but the different stories occurred at different times right um, and the fact that a young woman you know is lost to a glacier meant um, that the biological um, the biological persistence mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. missing right yeah. which you wouldn't mm-hmm. if your land is gone and you know' you're, you're not going to you're mm-hmm. going to not exist there physically right um, and the grandmother was that, you know, means that that part was gone culturally,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which happened to come around about the time when the Park Service, well, it wasn't all their fault, but yeah, it was John Muir, too, Right. Okay. <laughs> <who> <laughs> came along and said, wow, well, look at this great abandoned place, you know, and, um, right. and it's a great place for science. And therefore, you know, and of course, that was, we considered that the second Little Ice Age, they... Right. It wasn't the ice that kept us out. It was, you know, that, that system um, pushed us back out. So that was a key thing, I think, you know, as you said, we just told over time and time again, different versions, but I think, again, relate to different times in, uh, in history and, and the circumstances that we were in. Um, but it was very important um, growing up as a child, always to remember that we belonged, you know, over there
3: right.
1: uh, um, in a very particular way. So you know, and there was a fraught relationship with the park, and this is you know literally thirty, 30 miles apart across a body of water that we existed. Um, and it became important to me, and uh, not only you know um, as a young girl, but then when I worked for the Park Service, and mm. again now as an anthropologist, it's you know she keeps calling back, you know.
2: Mm. And do you think uh, a kind of an idea struck me as you were as you were retelling the the story and the different versions of it? Um, is there a part in your research? Or have you ever had the thought of making stories as part of your research or kind of yeah. a version of this? Or, yeah, you know?
1: well, and that's what um, one of the things as a park interpreter is uh, in this cultural specialist role that I was in was kind of creating these stories in a way that I wasn't giving away something sacred, right. um, which is very difficult to do anyway, but also, like I mentioned earlier, composing it so that people could understand Right. Um, yeah. the trials and tribulations, the successes and triumphs that, you know, the situation that we're in, um, you know, when people think about, you know, the place you know, it's a completely different place. Um, it was once a valley and then it was a bay. Um, and now it's another, you know, thing altogether. So getting people to think about how meaning, you know, uh, is, is, uh, It doesn't have to be geographically grounded. You know, place doesn't have to be geographically grounded, um, and attachments so forth. But yeah, so I have thought about that, Billy, um, and I thought, you know, now with with uh, climate change, and of course, when that glacier overtook Costine, um, as I mentioned in the earlier story, um, and she paid for her her life, whether it was the old woman or not. um, That idea is that. She paid for that place, it is mm. then sacred, or what we call et o, which is sacred possession
2: right
1: but again, you have to be careful about these translations because it could possession and things and you right, know can yeah. easily be absconded by mm-hmm. you know Western ideals sure. of territory and property and that kind of thing. Um, but I think it's very different, and that it is said she lives in the glacier mm. um, as this you know sacrifice that we were there that this place is meaningful um but now as the glaciers are melting away um are they're not regrowing i should say um for my last explanation um you might say you know and i was thinking okay so what is the continuation of Costine's story right um some would say you know well she's disappearing and i would say she's released mm. right You know, Mm. she's released from the ice. What does that mean to the Clinket? It means we're coming back, and that's where my thesis kind of picks up from my master's. Is in this time of climate change, we, you know, that this whole idea of displacement um, and reclamation is precisely where we find our sovereignty. Um, And as climate change is seen as this global idea of loss and catastrophe, and which it is, Mm -hmm. you know, to the Clinket, we've always endured. Those mm-hmm. t- types of transformations. This is not the first time. Even that first time, you know, that where it advanced and moved us out, um, I meaning you know, within the Wisconsin, you know, right. ice field did the same thing. And, and there's stories about floods, not the biblical flood, right. um, you know, that all kind of have been corroborated by these uh, geological events. Um, you know, it's, that's where I think um, puts and sets the clinket apart. Is that it's not you know it's this new relationship with the park right um, we're coming home mm. you know why I was back uh, working for the park in a new newly built tribal house that was recently dedicated in two thousand and sixteen um, you know it's that's to me the definition of sovereignty right you know
2: mm. would people like have a very strong sense of uh, sort of yearning for that particular place then or you know what I mean or it, like is you know what I mean in terms of the, the like you said the clinket are coming back right you're coming home or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with some sort right um, does that have a, could that does, do you know people who that has a lot of sort of emotional resonance for or it kind of means a lot uh, you know
1: it does and I think too though you know like I said to demystify being indigenous you know right. be, um, it's often expressed in anger and expressed in ways that um, you know are, are are not contributing to mm. um, us coming home. Right. Um, but yeah, right. there's yeah. attachment. It's always been thought of as our. Um, the place that provided everything. There was a reason why people lived near glaciers because they provided all these diverse ecosystems, you know. So um, you had sea mammals, you had seabirds and, right. and eggs and, you know, fish. So um, And also land animals. You had mountain goat, um, okay. bears. And so um, it was very a very, very rich place. Um, but yes, deep connections to it. Um, but now, you know, I would say the further we get from the, you know, event, um, you start to displace that feeling again, you know, into anger, you know, towards the park, um, and almost essentializing ourselves, Mm. you know, of saying, you know, this is part of us, you know, and, and I think it's important for people to understand, um, what our relationships to land are, besides us just saying we have this relationship, it's not a one-way street. Right. The glacier, you know, listens to us, but not just oh. the the clinket; it listen to everybody, right. oh. you know. And um, so, I, yeah, it's it's hugely important to our identity. Um, but coming back also means that those stories can continue. There was a break. There was no stories, and that's why Costine's story was so important to be told again and again and again over time. Right, um, and that would seem to be, um, you know, a point of disruption. It's very stagnant because well, where's the rest of the story? What happened? We can't always tell the same story forevermore. Right. Well, because we weren't there, we're not on the land. But now, it's like okay, she's back, mm. right? And so, what is that? what is that story going to be and how is it going to continue? Um, And I think that's the invitation also, Um, you know, the tribal house that was a a cooperative um, project between the park and the tribal government um, is a way of getting, uh, getting us home to a newly acquired, um, I wouldn't say right. I had this concept of rights that we, Mm. I think, you know, I, I keep thinking about that word I was kind of muddling with it, that if we changed it to responsibility, mm. Mm. if rights became responsibilities, it would be yeah. a, mean a whole nother thing for indigenous identity politics. Because yeah. yeah. uh, that's kind of how, in my culture, it works. You know, yeah. you don't get something because you were born with it. You, you're you obligated to it, mm. and responsible to mm. right. performing that particular. Anyway, I was that was kind of yeah. tangential. Um, but, yeah, so it is important, but we have to look at new ways right. of coming home yeah. and um and unburden ourselves from um this whole colonial idea you know that we are suppressed and that you know victimized even right. even though that's a very strong word, but of being like no, because we're doing precisely you know what our ancestors did
3: you right. know? I'd like to actually come back to um something that you mentioned about rights and responsibilities right. um you know i find it really interesting to think about sort of you know the rights and responsibilities of telling stories uh, who has the right to tell a story and who has a responsibility to tell a story right. and so you know i'm kind of interested what's what's your perspective on telling the stories of climate change uh, who has the right to tell certain stories and who Who's responsible for telling others
1: right that's a very good question Um, and it has you know a lot of resonance in what I do now and and the kind of an attitude that is um, coming out of it that you know stories um, like the one I told you are clan owned Um, in fact technically I could get in trouble for retelling it without getting the permission of the clan that owns it however and again i think that is something that is lost in translation right. because if only if you know how could you learn the lessons mm. from it if you couldn't you know um and then a um a wonderful woman nora downhower her and her husband um wrote these um and these lovely books about um about the clinket you know, like in a four volume set um and she said as herself, she said there you know, this whole idea of intellectual property is a new concept. You know, they, they are owned, meaning you care for them as in a responsibility and not a right to own. Right. Um, But they are not secret. Right. Um, You have to tell them. And it led me, you know, working for the park, I was running up against the same thing because the tribal government was like... um. You can't tell these stories because they're clan owned. And it's a very difficult line to walk. Um, And I was, because I was the only Klinkit working for the park, then that meant me. Right. But I felt like all 25 other interpreters, you could not tell the story of Glacier Bay without referring to the Klinkit. And so I found myself running up against this wall that these stories, you know, that you really couldn't own something. That you don't already have, you know, that you have a right right to, Mm. a responsibility to, Um, and I think it, you know, to me again, it it has to be told, or it would be remiss. It would Mm. be like, okay, let's just forget this part of the history ever happened. Um, And there's ways of doing that, you know. You could, you know, you could talk about culture and kinship and history um, without talking sacred, and in a way, those are stories too. Anthropology Anthropology's a story. Yeah, storytelling in its own right Yeah. Um, so yeah i mean it's and it's one thing to get again coming back to you know my own people is getting ourselves to understand that in a way our thinking has been diverted disrupted uh, interrupted um and we don't think in those ways of ownership and property in precisely the same ways not to exclude us from the fact that we engage in that now Yeah, that's, that's important to always remember. Mm. Um, um, one of the great things that occurred when I went to work for the park um, and I kind of went in as like this newborn kitten, like I really didn't know a lot, even, if, and I knew I was supposed to be talking about my own culture. Right. And at um, one time I ran into an old anthropologist. Um, well, actually he's a, he's an archeologist, but he worked for the park and he became this really important liaison to my community. So much so that my dad's clan, my dad's uncle, who was the clan leader at the time, adopted him. Um, Because it was his work that um, his uncovering or the bringing to light maybe the oral history of the park, all of a sudden he and the geologist kind of ran into each other and said, whoa, we're telling the same story. Mm And that that uh, geologist, he's he's about he's I think he's around ninety. Um, he is one of my dearest friends, and he has this lovely quote. He was like, "The rocks, wait, the history of Glacier Bay lies in the collective minds of the rocks and the clinkets." Mm. And that to me, totally divorces that you know that line mm. of culture nature. Yeah. Um, and so I got to where I was supposed to work, stationed, in my cabin had no um, electri- not electricity, no wifi, just just bad, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no wifi, no cell service, no TV, not even the radio would work. So it was the loudest quiet I've ever heard mm. in my life. Um, and I was kind of lost as to what to do, but um, I ran into that archeologist who become a close family friend as well. And he gave me my first hug as, my clan father, um, because he was adopted by my father's clan. Um, So I I look at him as such. um, And he says, I have something for you. I said, oh, okay, you'll drop it by. Uh, Next morning I woke up and on my cabin porch was this big binder, like huge, you could barely close. And in it was all of those oral traditions that he'd collected working Uh in Huna. Uh And he said, take what you need. That's like an a million piece puzzle. Yeah. but it was all there including all those different versions of Costine's story and other stories that I couldn't make sense of and why was this clan why did two clans have the same story because they were related because mm. they married into each other right. or you know um and thus began my journey and it was like okay I need to you know work on these and figure out mm. uh, because for him he's not indigenous everything was metaphorical And it's not that way. It's not, you know, it's not just metaphorical. And so he was always looking for these angles, but to me, I think he knew his limitations and I think he passed that on to me in a way. Um, And so it was very, um, it was very important to me to, to have all those different versions and realize that, wow, even women from the same clan of the same, almost same age, same, you know, generation told two different stories. Mm. And, that kind of, again, um, set me on my journey, you know. One beautiful thing that happened that caught me thinking about those stories was uh, working at the park, everything is science, science. And so there was marine biologists um, and I was thinking back to clans that represent um, my people in, in this coastal area of Southeast Alaska. And I thought, wow, you know what? We don't have too many like whale clans. I know one,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, especially the humpback. And, of course, I was a marine biologist on site, and I asked her, I said, do you know anything about the history of, like, the whales? Like, And, of course, that's, you know, we start talking about the different ice ages, but how do you know? How can you possibly tell? And then she just kind of matter-of-factly said, oh, you know what? There's something interesting. You know, I just found out in this new scientific journal and research that humpback whales, which we know um, from our area, go from um, uh, in the summer, spend their summers in Alaska, feeding, and then they make this huge journey to Hawaii, at least the group that in our area did that, right. um, to give birth. And of course they always knew that the females sang, um, but they discovered in this journal uh, that they sang um, all the way to Hawaii. <laughs> and it, But once they got there, this was the interesting part, once they got there, the females would continue to sing with their group until every single member of that group sang the same song. (laughs) But the catch was that every year when they come back, they add a little more to that song. And I thought, wow, they're creating this social map Mm there, you know, and that got me to start thinking about, you know, about storytelling in that very particular way of a continuation. Right. And to me, it was, again, against the stagnation of, you know, you can't, you can, you can only walk in the footsteps of your ancestors if you are willing to walk further.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, you have to go further. You have just to carry it. One step further. Yeah. Each time. Just each time, you know. Um, but yeah, so storytelling is something that, you know, I would love to, but I but I think it's also, you know, stigmatized, uh, right. especially with indigenous scholars. Like, oh, they're going to tell a story again, right. you know, or... <laughs> You know, so if I, but you know, that is my goal as an indigenous anthropologist: is to, you know, not inform you of what I know or that, you know, the the peculiarities, but to blur that line and maybe right. you see yourself in my culture or right. in my history, in my experiences and um, in these in this kind of storytelling, and right. that's kind of the way I write. And I realize now as an academic that oh my gosh, I had the hardest time because I do write more. I think melodically. Mm-hmm. I do write in mm-hmm. kind of story form, um, and that's where my strength is. Yeah. Um, and why not? Yeah. You why know? not? Yeah, I, no. Why not go back to that? But, but again, crafting these stories, like not f- just from old stories, but creating them, um, is incredibly hard. It is taking all of those. Like I mentioned, you know all of the theories, you know that you learn as an anthropologist, and taking them a step further and combining them in a way that is, you know, either you're going to get now, maybe you're going to get sometime down the road, and that's mm-hmm. why stories are beautiful—they reveal something different to you every time you hear them. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh,
3: Walter Benjamin says that a good story and a good storyteller introduces an element of surprise. Yeah. Uh, and uh, just kind of reminded me of. Yeah. Uh, exactly what you were saying. Where are you going to take it? Even the storyteller doesn't know necessarily at the outset where it could go.
1: Right. Right. That's incredibly true. I mean, it's, it's, I love, you know, every time I open up that, that folder and I read a story, I, I get something new, something else, yeah. you know, revealed in a different way. But sometimes I think it happens at particular points of your life and only then and when mm. would that present itself to you. Mm. That is the beauty of story. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, pretend to be a storyteller, um, like you were mentioning, who does that, who has that right. Um, but I think ultimately it's chosen me, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't really have a say about
2: it. <laughs> well, I don't know about anthropologists, but like, you know, when Phil mentioned, uh, Walter Benjamin, you know, he used to go on radio and, uh, you know, read out, uh, kids' stories that he either wrote himself or kind of heard from other places. Um Kind of be an interesting thing to do to actually kind of speak stories as well.
1: It is, and I think that's where I really did thrive Um because precisely in this role of cultu- cultural cultural interpreter, cultural interpreter or specialist, as they they called me, um, they basically it was so funny because I, I find it the same in academia. They your indigenous they leave you alone, like just let her do her work. Don't critique, don't you know? And I think that's wrong. Um, But they left me alone. They gave me all the resources in the world. Just do whatever, you know, come up with a program. But I also I didn't want to do it for entertainment purposes. I was going to give a lecture. I have forty five minutes, um, and so I did. I used that binder. I used you know the um, research they gave me, and compiled. The story in the house, you know how am I going to bring it to life? How am I going to get people to understand what this house what the what the house panel and the house posts mean you know without mm-hmm. being this is this, that is that, and mm. just you yeah. know never mind um, and and it was a story, and it was something that was um incredibly powerful and because I had i think in that ability to capture people um and they had they had time to respond even, and then they then they started taking me, putting me on ships, right. cruise ships, and I had to do it you know I had to do these uh, formal presentations in a theater you know, of nine hundred people. Oh, okay. Um, and again, again, it was very academic because uh, it was funny enough because I had to prove my, um, I had to kind of prove my sources. To the tribal government mm. that oversaw the interpretation, um, and the park was like, "We trust her." Yeah. <laughs> we um, so it was very academic, um, but it was in that same line and and of just speaking the history. You know, I could look into people's eyes, even in an audience, and connect. Mm. And I'm not saying I'm a superstar, <laughs> but it was very unnerving because when you had when you're on a cruise ship. Mm-hmm. And you're wearing the Smokey the Bear hat, you know, uh, you're very noticeable. Um, and you give this presentation, um, you know, I went backstage and the stage, the sound guy was like, they're waiting for you. And I'm like, who? He's like, the audience. <laughs> and he was trying to get me out this back door. And they I, they were finding me wherever I was, even in the bathroom. I mean, because they want to know more. They want to yeah. ask more, you know. Um And I thought, wow, you know, here at the tribal house, I would have an audience of, at the most, 90 a day. And there I just talked about the complexities of the history of the Clinket, of climate change, of the park's history, you know, critiquing John Muir and conservation. You know, they let me do anything. And I did. Um, And people were grateful for it, you know, to to be open, to be like, you know, I'm not just here to talk about the the birds and the you know the the beautiful scenery um but it was, again it was just one person um but yeah i think the spoken word is powerful and if yeah. you can do it then more power to you you know i always wish that people could see me um in alaska yeah. you know because mm. I, I think that that reflects me you know that is my identity more this like this i feel like i just gave you a fraction of myself which makes me incredibly happy because i don't get that i don't have that opportunity very often so that was um my honor thank you
2: thanks for having thanks for coming coming on board yeah thank you thank you thank you Well, Phil, that was uh, quite the interesting interview with uh, Sonia. She's uh, an extremely compelling and uh, vivid kind of storyteller. It's uh, it's the way I really like listening to stories, stories that really capture your attention and and draw you into things. And she touched on quite a number of different topics uh, throughout that interview uh, in terms of the ecological crisis and indigenous viewpoints on that uh, ecological crisis. Uh, she made a few really interesting points about her anthropology fieldwork, uh, especially in relation to some of the literature as well that she was influenced by, in particular, Julie Cookshank a former at UBC who wrote Do Glaciers Listen?, Uh, and also in terms of reflecting on her anthropology fieldwork, right? Uh, How her FOSS award uh, and her mentorship uh, via Zoe Todd in the Department of Anthropology, as well as other scholars, it really led her to an interesting point in her fieldwork that I found particularly interesting from the point of view of the different standpoints and perspectives she's bringing to bear on things like storytelling, anthropology, fieldwork, colonialism, and uh, ecological crises as well.
3: Yeah, Uh, What did you make of uh, the interview, Phil? You know, I have a soft spot uh, for really good, engaging stories. And I remember being in the room, so this was kind of pre-COVID precautions, Mm -hmm. being in the room uh, with Sonia and being uh, totally immersed in the story that she was telling us. Uh, But it extended beyond uh, just the story that had been passed down through generations and that she was retelling like all good storytellers. She inserted her own trajectory into the story. So we got to learn about her interests and uh, her kind of experience at the park uh, in relation to this ecological crisis uh, story that she was telling us. So I found it fascinating. And I think it's a really neat sort of template to be able to tell an engaging story, um, interjecting one's own career into the topic that you're discussing.
2: Especially the story she, she told at the end, Phil, in relation to uh, that individual who she met and who yeah. provided her with so much documentation and material for her to continue on and get deeper into the research as well. Um, You know, I found that sort of, I found that story at the end, Um, how how she did
3: the research, uh, particularly sort of uh, compelling as well, I must say. Yeah, yeah, so did I. It's mm-hmm. uh, It's a good listen, and it's something that I will listen to Uh, at least a few more times. Mm -hmm. Billy, uh, the Department of Sociology, Anthropology, the Faculty of Arts and Social Science, there's some events coming up, isn't there?
2: Yes, Phil, there are some events coming up, especially events organized by our fantastic uh, Sociology and Anthropology Student Association, or SASA, as it's known. Yeah. Uh, basically, we SASA have been extremely active, especially in light of the uh, COVID-19 social distancing issue. And they're really making a massive push and effort to organize a whole range of different social events for
3: undergraduate students uh, in the department uh, this term, actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Earlier this week, I had a chance to chat with Janie, uh, the co-president of SASA, and here's that clip. It is my pleasure today to be able to speak with Janie. Janie is the co president of SASA here at Carleton. Welcome, Janie. Uh, let's uh, start it off. What is SASA? Hey,
0: everyone. So, SASA is the Sociology and Anthropology Student Association. We, as a student association, are here as kind of a resource for all sociology and anthropology students as a way of kind of staying connected with the department. And we also provide like a safe space for students to get to know each other, as well as uh, get to know faculty in the department as well.
3: As co-president of SASA, I imagine one of the things that is going on uh, with you is organizing events. SASA always has a great lineup of events. Uh, what are some of the things that we can look forward to uh, this term?
0: So we actually have a lot of fun and engaging events planned uh, for the school year that are mix between academic, and social events. Uh, Our second event is actually this Friday, September 25th from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. We're hosting a virtual game night via Zoom. We have a lot of fun games planned as well as uh, a chance to win some prizes. Uh, You also get a chance to meet the rest of the Sasa executive team. Um, Throughout the rest of the semester, we have events uh, that include uh, meeting the department. Uh, We plan to have some panel discussions and even maybe some movie nights. It kind of varies. There's a oh, lot of neat. different things. Yeah,
3: neat. So just because we're not on campus doesn't mean that there are no SASA events happening.
0: Exactly.
3: That's neat. And wh- uh, what is this meet and greet that's happening?
0: So the meet and greet is um, going to be happening October 16th. Uh, also via Zoom. Um, it's gonna. We kind of want to. We kind of wanted to make a way for students to get to know. Um, the faculty, as well as even graduate students as well. It's kind of open to students of all uh, years, whether it's first year or even fourth year. I think something that we've all kind of agreed on collectively as a team is that we wish we got to know our department more earlier on. So this is kind of Mm -hmm. why we plan to do this.
3: Yeah. Getting to know, uh, profs and the people in the department is so important to the, uh, student experience. So exactly. I'm really looking forward to that, uh, meet and greet event. Yes. Um, do you guys also, uh, do socials? Is that something that, that SASA is continuing on this term?
0: Yeah. So our socials will be like via zoom as well. Um, they'll be kind of hosted every other Friday. That's kind of our agenda. um, mm-hmm. it's, um Minusing kind of the weeks of reading weeks and stuff like that. You're right. Uh, Sometimes those will be a couple more weeks in between. But all of our um, information you can find will be uh, at our Instagram page at sasa.cu um, and then on there we have a link tree that goes to our website for our event calendars and everything is kind of all there.
3: And that's on Instagram at s a s a c u dot cu dot cu yes. Jeannie, could you spend a little bit of time talking to us about what the CCR credit is?
0: Yeah, so um, as the Student Association, we really encourage student um, involvement and engagement. That being said, we actually offer the students the ability to gain a CCR credit. And for those of you who don't know what that is, um, it is a volunteer kind of position that you can put on your co-curricular record. um, And that kind of builds throughout your entire academic year and uh, it's great to use on your resumes for like your future job applications and stuff like that. Uh, Within SASA, uh, we're giving students the ability to gain one of these by attending a minimum of only three events throughout the entire school year. And you can, um, at the events we can, we're we're gonna be taking attendance and stuff. So we'll have a track of everyone who comes and that way at the end of the year, you'll be able to apply and then we can uh, give you that credit.
3: That's awesome. So, like, the meet and greet and the game night would count towards a CCR credit. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So students could actually by the end of October have two out of the three credits needed.
0: Exactly. That's kind of that's kind of how we like wanted to make it like super like low committal, especially because of like the circumstances that we're all in right now. Uh, we right. wanted everyone to kind of have a chance to be able to get something like this too, and it's definitely valuable um, as you'll probably learn throughout your years at university.
3: Wow. So Sasa is up to a lot of really great stuff. There's a game night, a meet and greet, there's socials every Friday, and they're part of the CCR credit. Uh, Jeannie, thank you so much for coming on. The last thing I'm going to ask you is if students want to get involved or want to learn more, where can they reach you?
0: They can reach us at SASA reception at gmail.com or they can find um, us at at sasa.cu on Instagram. Um, all of our information is kind of in our bio and within a link tree, there's like a bunch of uh things, links to our website, the links to our Zoom, like everything's kind of there. So yeah, that's kind of where everything is.
3: Awesome. Well, thank you, Janie. And uh, looking thank forward you. to seeing you soon.
0: Yes, thank you.
2: Well, everyone, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed our first comeback episode uh, after the summer. Uh, We certainly look forward to lining up uh, many more episodes as well as our live broadcast event uh, in
3: the coming weeks. As episode one, season two comes to a close. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so through email at info at departmentpodcast.ca. You can follow us on Twitter at departmentpod. And we do have a website that has a catalog of past episodes. It's www.departmentpodcast.ca. Was, was that a pun on catalog, Phil? Oh, you, you, you always know how to do the perfect
2: puns. <laughs> thanks very much. It's, it's been great being back. It's, it's really nice uh, being able to, to do this with you again, Phil. And it's really nice uh, knowing that people are going to have an opportunity to listen to uh, all the exciting stuff that's happening around the department again, huh?
3: Yeah, it has been nice doing this with you, Billy. And hey, thanks for listening.
2: Enough. That's a wrap.
0: <laughs> cool. <laughs> um, let me see.